Well, who would have thought that in New York City, a city with an extremely high Jewish-American population, probably higher than any other city in the United States, would we hear a most vicious anti-Semitic speech given by a valedictorian at the graduation ceremony of a CUNY school, the City University of New York School. And in this particular case, it was the CUNY Law School in Queens. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store and simply subscribe to the Jamie Dury Show directly, or you can download the free Podbean app in either of those two locations and subscribe through Podbean, our hosting service. Either way, you'll be able to leave reviews, comments. We need more of both to help us grow the show. And you can always email me directly at jamiedury1776 at gmail.com. If you have anything you would like to ask me, a topic you'd like me to discuss or cover in a show. So what happened? Well, first of all, I'm very surprised that I didn't hear about this until the day after Memorial Day when I was driving back into the city. Um, but the speech actually took place some weeks before, on May the 12th. And I guess it took that long before people really knew about it or got into the mainstream media, or perhaps it was being suppressed until it was picked up by the radio talk show host. Because I didn't hear this anyplace else but talk radio. I didn't hear it in the, on the news. I did see it written in the New York Post, I think after it was mentioned uh, on the radio shows. Another reason why, as I mentioned in a few shows uh, prior to this, we absolutely have to fight to keep AM radio in our cars. Several new car manufacturers have elected to remove AM radio from their models. And as I've said before, AM radio is a principal source of information for many people in this country. Many people who are not people of means and don't have the wherewithal or the time to listen to cable news. And even if they did, we all know that the news industry in this country has been corrupted. We're not getting the unvarnished version of the news. We're getting opinion journalism. So if we don't get news from AM radio, many people are going to have, <clears throat> excuse me, a significant source of information cut off to them. Cable is very expensive every month. Uh, there are people who also work a substantial portions of the day and don't have time to sit and devote to watching TV, but have time to listen to news uh, in their vehicles as they're driving. Uh, Cross-country, long-range truckers get a great deal of their news from the radio, uh, and it's free. It's not like satellite radio, which requires a subscription. AM radio was the hallmark of radio when I grew up. It was the home of radio, music, and uh, other things. But uh, with the popularity of FM radio and the greater fidelity, as I've said before, music made its way off of AM radio and on its way to FM radio, and talk radio really saved 
uh, AM radio, and AM radio may very well save America. So we need to keep AM radio back into our, in our cars. Any event, I was listening to both the Joe Piscopo show here in New York and the uh, Sid Rosenberg show in the morning. I flipped back and forth. And I hear about this speech by this student, Fatima Musa Muhammad. Now, who is she? Well, she's an immigrant from Yemen, which is a very, very anti-West, anti-American Middle Eastern country. And she's long been a hater, a hater of the United States, a hater of Israel, a hater of the police department, of the West. She's made numerous tweets and Instagram posts. I'm going to read a few here from an article. Uh, May every Zionist burn in the hottest pit of hell. That's a choice, choice quote. Here's another. I pray upon the death of the USA. May God curse you. May you pray for the fall and destruction of Zionism in Israel. Um, And she says, yeah, I don't believe it's just hate. I don't believe that Israel should exist at all. Here is your daily reminder that a world without Israel existed and a future without it will too. Glory to the martyrs, glory to each and every single person throwing stones. Demand that Zionist professors are not welcomed on your campus. Demand that Zionist students are not in spaces where Palestinian students are because Zionism is a threat. Go, God, make the fire of Muslims burn on the enemies. You're supposed to say, oh, Allah, in case you didn't know, Muhammad. You're not supposed to say, oh, God. Look, this person is demented. This person has a serious problem. I don't know any Jews that are going out and blowing up uh, mosques. Do you? I don't know any Israelis that are going out committing terrorist acts. I know Israeli soldiers are defending their Jewish homeland and the Israeli homeland and uh, defending their citizens. I don't equate that with a terrorist um, uh, attack. And I I don't buy into this, oh, they only throw rocks because that's all they have. This is all a communist leftist tactic. They let the people they want to see throwing rocks throw rocks. Meanwhile, the people with the guns, they they hightail it out of there to make it look as if the Israelis are just shooting on disgruntled youth who are throwing rocks. Look, the Palestinians are the terrorists. They've been the terrorists. And I've got a news flash for you, uh, Fatima. There was a world before Palestine. It existed. And there can be a future without it just as well. So keep going the way you're going, and you may get your wish, but not quite in the way you thought. So what did this woman do? She went out and she made a speech, and she uh, did nothing short of throwing bombs. She uh, called for the destruction of Israel. She said that we should that the City University of New York should no longer uh, cooperate with the with the fascist NYPD. Let's see if I can get a couple of pull quotes from the article. Um, let's see. A big article here. And she wore the damn uh, hood wrapped around her head like a terrorist. Uh, Like many of you, 
I chose CUNY School of Law for its articulated mission, Law in the Service of Human Needs, one of the very few legal institutions created to recognize that the law is a manifestation of white supremacy that continues to oppress and suppress people in this nation and around the world. Now, that's novel. I didn't know that the CUNY School of Law was uh, one of the few legal institutions that was specifically created to recognize that the law is a manifestation of white supremacy. I didn't know that. Did you know that? I thought that the CUNY School of Law was originally uh, formulated to be an affordable alternative for people who couldn't afford some of the other law schools, so people of minority extraction or people who were economically challenged could get access to a quality law school education if that's the uh, vocation or profession that they sought. I didn't know that it was law in the service of human needs and and, uh, to recognize that law is all a manifestation of white supremacy. So all law is a manifestation of white supremacy. Is that it? Is that because it started with the Magna Carta, which happened in Europe? So no other law? Well, if that's the case, maybe we should be thankful for this white supremacist law, since all of civilized law seems to emanate from that. Uh, And many of the countries around the world that were colonized by the British and were given self-government and taught how to govern themselves after the British left adopt some form of parliamentary government. Maybe it was a good thing. Look, I don't know what your problem is. I think your problem is that you have a mental problem. I think you're defective. I think you're sick. I think you're evil. I think you're a terrorist. And I don't think you should be allowed to go to a school in this country. In fact, I think you should be deported. I don't know how the hell you got into this country in the first place. And you're pretty damn ungrateful for criticizing the country that allowed you to get the education you got. You probably didn't pay for it. And if you did pay for it, you probably have no intention of paying it back. And you never could have gotten it in Yemen, that one-horse dump that you lived in, a hotbed of terrorism, the place where the the uh, bombing of the USS Cole was planned, and so many other terrorist attacks. So save it for somebody who cares, because I certainly don't. All I know is I have known many people of Jewish extraction over my life. My wife is Jewish. My son is Jewish. And they have been among the most generous and kindest of people that I've ever met. And I've never seen them go out and do violence. I've never seen them go out and advocate violence the way you're saying they did. I've seen a lot of Palestinians go out and advocate violence. I see a lot of Palestinians being deliberately kept down and uneducated, not by the Israelis, but by the own, their own Palestinian organization. So they remain ignorant and angry and easily manipulated by people like you. So the sooner we're rid of you, the better off we are. Now, It brings to mind another question. How did this speech even be allowed to happen? Because it had to be approved, you would think. And if it wasn't approved by the dean or somebody else, when she started on this rant, the dean who was on the stage with her could have got up, interjected, and said, all right, that's enough. We're not allowing this. Get off. But the dean... Dean Setti of the law school has been captured on a live stream video applauding the speech of Fatima Muhammad. So obviously, A, 
she agrees with what she said. B, if she didn't see the speech beforehand, obviously she doesn't care because she applauded it. And C, if she did see the speech beforehand, mindful of what she was going to say, she approved it. Because it's a far-gone conclusion that she didn't show her a different speech. Because if she did, uh, and then she changed it, you would expect that she would have objected. So she didn't. So she knew exactly what kind of speech was going to be made, and she approved it. Now, there's a lot of call for removal of this dean. Uh, but I think the best solution is the one that Bill O'Reilly uh, proposed when he was being interviewed by Sid Rosenberg. Uh, yesterday morning, I believe. And that is, don't fire her. Remove her from that post. Don't fire her from the SUNY, uh, the CUNY system. Transfer her up to Potsdam in the SUNY system and see if you can put her in the cold. Now, I think Mr. O'Reilly may have, O'Reilly may have misspoken because Dean Seti is the dean of the CUNY law school system. Now, she gets state funds. Now, I don't know if CUNY, the way it's organized, is completely separate from SUNY, which is the state University of New York system. Uh, if it's all part of one uh, organization, just different branches, then maybe they could lateral her over to some bitterly cold winter climate in the western tier of New York and let her see what life is like in a different part of the state outside of the Big Apple. But clearly, she needs to be held to account for allowing this filth to be spoken from a podium that taxpayers of New York are paying for. So we're going to be following this story and see how it goes. Uh, some original graduates of the law school voiced their objection. Apparently, the first graduating class that ever came out of the CUNY system uh, was the class of 86. Uh, and the alumni of the class of 86 uh, spoke out in disgust. There's a picture of them as young uh, attorneys in 1986. Uh, and 37 years ago was the graduation. Let's see what they had to say. There's an open letter here. Now, I'm not going to read the entire letter. Uh, I'm just going to try and get some comments here from the article. Uh, Dan Elias wrote the letter on behalf of the 1986 alums. It was co-signed by Jill Stone, Anna Rumberg, and Noah, Karen Hotchberg, Tomer, Paul Goodman, Vincent Maher. He said, our legacy has been disgraced, and we are totally disgusted by a faculty and administration that have nurtured this toxic, intolerant, and anti-Semitic environment. I couldn't agree more with that sentiment, Mr. Elias. He went on to say that they're pushing a political agenda. I don't know how it prepares people for practicing law. Neither do I. I think it just prepares people to practice terrorism and encourages terrorism. In fact, it borders on criminal anarchy uh, by doing what she did. So I hope that um, the fallout from this continues and that uh, she is held to account, that she's never allowed to take the bar. It has been suggested that the speech that she made disqualifies her on various grounds, character grounds of being able to pass or being admitted to the bar, even if she were to pass the bar exam. Uh, by virtue of what she said, she should fail the character review portion of admission to the bar, which has nothing to do with the test. So we'll see how that, how that goes. Now, on another legal front, we have a battle that has been brewing between the Congress of the United States, specifically 
Congressman Comer, James Comer, and Senator Chuck Grassley, who's the ranking member of the Senate Budget Committee. It came to, to uh, for those of you who haven't followed it, it came to Senator Grassley's attention that the FBI had in their possession a file containing allegations from a whistleblower that linked Joe Biden, our president, your president, not mine, to a criminal scheme involving money for policy decisions while he was vice president. Now, Senator Grassley, because the Senate is held by the Democrats, is the leading minority member of the committee, but he's not the chairman of the committee, and therefore he doesn't have subpoena power. Only the chairman does, and the chairman is a Democrat, and he's not going to subpoena anything that could damage a Democratic president. But Chuck Grassley, smartly, a lifetime politician down there, he knows how Washington works, he went to Congressman Comer, who is the chairman of his oversight committee, and he issued a subpoena. And Ray, the director of the FBI, told them to go pound sand. And then he made an offer that you could look at the file in a secure facility in the FBI, meaning you, Congress, would have to come to us, the FBI, and then you would see the, uh, the document. But that wasn't what Grassley and Comer were looking for. They are the elected officials. They have oversight of the FBI. They are above the FBI. The FBI are not above them. And they wanted Ray to bring it to them. And there was another reason why Comer and Grassley did not want to go to the secure location. Because they were interviewed, uh, Comer was anyway, on Fox News by Sean Hannity. And he told Hannity that he was drafting legislation to hold Ray in contempt of Congress. I'm not quite sure whether they have to draft registration. Congress has the power to hold him in contempt. Um, so he asked, uh, Hannity did, why he and Grassley did not take advantage of Ray's offer to see the document in a secured location. And here's where Comer clarified it. He said that the previous offer would only allow us access to a redacted version of the document, which Comer said is not sufficient to support his committee's oversight responsibility, and that in his experience with getting documents from the FBI, they were all black, indicating that too much information was redacted from the document to be helpful. I can attest to that. I had a situation, which I will not go into now, where I made a Freedom of Information Act request of the FBI and was given numerous documents in response to that request. When I got them, they probably weren't worth the paper they were printed on because so much of it was just blocks and blocks of black that they were worthless. This is like Nazi Germany. And they would block out things that you don't even think they have a right to block out. Like if you were subpoenaing um, arrest papers, they wouldn't give you the name of the FBI agent who made the arrest. Imagine you subpoenaing uh, the arrest records from an arrest made by a New York City police officer or detective. And that when you got the documents from the NYPD, they blacked out the detective or officer's name. People would go through the roof. But yet the FBI does this and this is okay. So they wanted the form. And according to Comer, I guess they had a good source uh, of uh, information as to 
the existence of this whistleblower document interview and what it contained. Quote, we knew what was in the 1023 form, Comer said of his conversation with the FBI director, until we told Director Ray that he never even admitted that the form existed. Speaking to the reason, I'm reading some pull quotes from the article. His committee is adamant about having access to the document. Comer said, quote, the reason is we find this allegation credible. And the reason why we find it credible is not only because of the credibility of the whistleblower making it, but because we've seen a pattern of Joe Biden when he was vice president leaving a country after he talks about foreign aid and foreign policy and his family members start receiving payments. That's too coincidental. And I couldn't believe I was watching a clip on YouTube the other day where someone was defending to a member of Congress Joe Biden as vice president threatening the president of Ukraine um, with withholding a billion dollars of aid if the prosecutor investigating his son was not fired. His son's prosecutor was fired, and the people got the money. Now, if that isn't quid pro quo, this for that, I don't know what is. And this witness was saying, well, he was following established policy. I'm sorry, that's not established policy. When you're using your position to take political heat or cease an investigation of your family member, your son, and you're going to hold a government hostage to the money that the government of the United States has committed to them, that's a pay-for-play scheme. You're getting a benefit in exchange for that, and that's corruption. And that's to say nothing of all the money that flowed to the accounts of Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's brother, and other members of the Biden family, and always this cryptic reference to the big guy and a certain percentage being held back for him. I mean, it's no secret. How does somebody work for the government for 50 years and have the sort of holdings that Joe Biden holds? Four oceanfront homes or luxurious homes? How do people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an unemployed barmaid, get elected to two terms of Congress and now she's worth $25 million when you're making 150000 a year? How does that happen? How can it be allowed to happen? The appearance of impropriety, the connection people are going to make is that you're selling something and it's not intellect, it's not labor, it's influence, it's access. You're selling your country for that kind of money. There's no way you can make that kind of money. Or... You're one of those many, many congressional people who like to invest in stocks and never seem to make a bad trade because they always seem to know the exact proper time to buy or sell. And it couldn't possibly be because they regulate the industry and have inside information. If we did that, we'd all be going to jail. How was it that Nancy Pelosi sold all her Google stock just when she was supposed to sell it? So we have a lot to investigate here. And apparently... Ray is going to provide this document on June 5th, which is Monday. Now, what is Congress supposed to do about this 
if Ray shows up with a redacted copy, even if it isn't as redacted as what they would have given him. Well, I was on the radio this morning. I had called in to the Joe Piscopo show, and I made mention of this to him, and he seemed receptive to the idea. You know, there is no jail in the Capitol, and technically, if you wanted someone prosecuted for contempt of Congress, which is what Ray was threatened with by Comer if he didn't comply, you have to refer that to the Justice Department. And the Justice Department, in the form of the Attorney General, makes a determination, and they refer it to the appropriate uh, U.S. Attorney's Office for prosecution. Now, the FBI is the law enforcement and investigative arm of the Justice Department, the same Justice Department that Merrick Garland heads. So you know he's not going to prosecute Ray. So what can Congress do when you have a political battle like this, where the FBI and the the um, Attorney General, head of the Justice Department, are in one political camp, and the Congress that are trying to see these things done are in another political camp. Well, there are sequester rooms down in the Capitol. They're not jail cells, but they are secure rooms where people can be held and and uh, in incommunicado. So, in my opinion, what should happen is if Christopher Ray or any of these other people who they want to hold in contempt come to Congress and testify and act in such a manner that causes them to be rightfully cited for contempt. The sergeant of arms of the Congress should be summoned, and he should go and remove that person to one of the secure facilities, and that person should be kept there until they comply. So if Christopher Ray shows up on Monday with a redacted document and refuses to produce the real one, his butt should be dragged downstairs in handcuffs, without handcuffs, I don't care, But he should be dragged down there and kept there as long as they need to keep him there until he gives up the information or changes his tune. And that goes for all these other stars that go before Congress. You know, I've seen this pattern developing. I saw this just as recently as a few weeks ago when Mark Pomerantz, the man I did a show about, one of the men who was investigating Donald Trump at the behest of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, he had been a U.S. attorney, then he'd been in private practice, then he came back to the U.S. attorney, then he was back in private practice, and then he was tapped by Cyrus Vance because he was a specialist, supposedly, in investigating financial crimes to investigate Donald Trump on allegations of misuse of uh, campaign funds and what have you. And after investigating for an extended period of time, um, he brought his findings to Vance and then to Bragg, and they both said they didn't think it was sufficient to pursue. They thought that it was um, not a compelling case. And he stomped his feet like a little spoiled rat. I was going to say brat, but he's a rat. Uh, And um, he went and wrote a book using privileged information from those grand jury proceedings in that investigation. And he was warned and informed by lawyers from the Manhattan DA's office of Alan Bragg that he'd opened himself up to potential criminal liability for what he did. But he wrote the book nevertheless, got a big payday, and then the prosecutors were intimidated by these public findings, uh, these public disclosures, I should say, and they decided to prosecute Trump. So the Republicans in Congress uh, had a right to subpoena him because they wanted to know, hey, look, is this a legitimate prosecution? Are you just doing this for political theater because you're trying to remove the leading candidate uh, in the 2024 field from contention? So he fights it. 
loses in court, is compelled by the judge to re- to respond to the subpoena, is allowed to go in there and make an opening statement where he disses and trashes the committee and Jim Jordan, and then he claims the fifth for five hours. So he gets to make an opening statement, and then he claims the fifth? Why, you can, make, you can say what you want to say, and it's unassailable, that we can't ask you any questions? This reminded me of what happened with Lois Lerner several years earlier. She was the woman who was the head of the IRS, and it was discovered that the IRS had been weaponized by the Obama administration to go after conservatives with audits. She went in and made an opening statement, then she claimed the fifth. And one of the congressmen on the stand, I don't know if it was Trey Gowdy, because uh, I don't know if he was the chairman of that particular committee, but someone made a statement that, or made the observation, look, you can't make a statement and then claim the fifth. Once you make the statement, you've abdicated your right to claim the fifth. You've surrendered your privilege to the fifth. You can't make a statement and say, we can't question you about it. You should be held in contempt. And she should have. Lois Lerner should have been taken to that sequester room, and maybe we wouldn't have these problems now if you make an example of someone. That's what should have been done, but it wasn't done. It wasn't done to Lois Lerner. It wasn't done to Mark Pomerantz. And for all their bluster, a lot of these congressmen make a great speech. They talk a good talk. They say they're going to do this. And what do they accomplish? Nothing. I used to have a lot of respect for Trey Gowdy. He talked about Department of Justice and the great attorneys at the FBI. made all these great speeches about Hillary Clinton. And he attacked her and he rolled up his sleeves and he... Uh, smacked her with this question, that question. But what did he actually do? Did he actually hold her in contempt? Did he hold anyone in contempt? Did he sequester anyone? He did very, very little except serve out his term, and now he's a paid contributor at Fox News, that dying brand of a news station. And if Jim Jordan isn't careful, he's going to suffer the same fate and lose the respect of many people who have previously had great regard for him. If they let people like Mark Pomerantz and Christopher Ray and all those other people, though the Christopher Ray deal arguably is not within Jordan's area of responsibility, this one's going to fall to Comer. But you get my, my general cast. Uh, this, this should not in any way be allowed. So what else do we have in the news that I wanted to talk about? The two big ones I got out of the way, but there are a few. Um, well, our illustrious fearless leader, for a little comic relief, uh, fell down uh, during the graduation ceremony at the United States Air Force Academy on June 1st. Now, I'm going to review this again on YouTube. You can hear it in the background. Let me see if I can, if I can raise it up here. Let's go back again, reviews it. Now, they blamed it on a sandbag. So it means he didn't know a sandbag was there. He fell over a sandbag. He tripped and he fell down. They said he tripped over a sandbag. Well, let me tell you what this is. Biden is old. But there are a lot of people that are old 
and vigorous. Biden is old and he's not vigorous. Biden is old and he's frail. He's old and he's dementia-ridden. He's old and he's competent and he's incompetent de- and he's deteriorating at an accelerated rate. So when he walks, he doesn't pick up his feet anymore. He's losing sensitivity in the bottom of his feet, the soma systems of the body, and he's shuffling along. He's not picking up his feet. No person should have tripped over that black sandbag. He did. It was a sunlit stage. It was easily visible if it was there. I saw it basically briefly in the bottom of the clip because the camera was focused at at head and chest height. In the aftermath of the fall, I looked to the left. I don't know if that was the sandbag they say he tripped over. He may have just tripped, period. But either way, 90% of the people walking there would not have tripped Uh, on that sandbag. And if they did, they probably would have had the strength in their legs to recover. He didn't because he's frail and he's unfit for office. He's unfit for any position of responsibility. In fact, I don't think he's even mentally competent to handle his own affairs. His wife should be given power of attorney. He should not be allowed to make any decision, let alone decisions that affect the lives of millions of other people in this country and around the world. And a lot of people recognize this. So a lot of people are entering the fray to try and take Mr. Biden out. Uh, Who are some of the recent entries into the 2024 election? Well, we have Ron DeSantis, we know, the governor of Florida. Of all the people that have entered, Ron DeSantis is probably the only person that has a real right to enter because he has some level of, of uh, achievement and has some semblance of a chance, although I don't think he could uh, wrest the nomination from Donald Trump. If Ron DeSantis runs against Joe Biden and Donald Trump was not an issue and decided he didn't want to run, could Ron DeSantis beat Joe Biden? I would say yes, because at this point, I could probably beat Joe Biden. But first, you have to get the nomination. Now, a lot of people are speculating that the Democrats really want Trump to be the nominee uh, because they think he's the easiest to beat. For people that want Trump to be the nominee, these Democrat attorneys and AGs and election committees and what have you are engaging in an awful lot of investigations and trials of Donald Trump, doing everything they can to try and damage him and prevent him from getting the nomination. Uh, That's not the way to go about Um, allowing someone to run so you can beat him. They're doing everything they can to see that he can't get the nomination. I think it's all going to fail. I think it's only going to make him stronger. And I think, I don't know, anyone could lose against Joe Biden. When you have 66% of the people polled in this country saying that his reelection would be a terrible thing for the United States. It means only 34% of the people think it might not be a bad thing for the United States. So we have a big problem here. So I think Ron DeSantis is a good man. I think his time may come in the future, but it's not now. Tim Scott has entered the race. Oh, and by the way, as I told Joe Piscopo this morning, uh, he'd never be able to hold up to the... uh, to the pressure in Washington. He can do what he did in Florida because he has a Republican electorate and a Republican legislature, but he he won't be able to get away with that in in Washington. They'll chew him up. Tim Scott is the senator from South Carolina. He's a true American success story. He's a wonderful man. 
uh, honest man, a decent man, uh, but he's not well known enough. He has no chance of being elected. But I don't think he's trying to be elected. I think he's trying, as other people have observed, to get a spot as vice president. And I don't know why that is. Everybody seems to think that getting a vice president spot is a good uh, holding place for you to jumpstart and get elected president later on down the line. Not true. Uh, in the last 150 years, up to George Bush, um, or actually up to Bill Clinton and Al Gore, in the previous 150 years of the country, only one time did a sitting vice president ever ascend to the presidency following election in his own right when his former president retired or left office. And that was George Herbert Walker Bush, who followed Ronald Reagan. And the only reason why George Herbert Walker Bush was able to get elected was because Ronald Reagan was such a popular president, winning re-election to the tune of 49 states, the largest electoral victory in the history of this country, that people thought they were getting a third term of Reagan. And people would have voted for a third term of Reagan, but term limits did not make that possible. And Reagan was getting up there in age. But either way, that's how he got elected. No other sitting vice president was elected in 150 years. Richard Nixon became president, but not as a sitting vice president. He became a president uh, almost a decade later, uh, running after the fact. Uh, but he did not win then. Um, Harry Truman arguably did not run as the vice president because he was the vice president, then became president upon the death of FDR and then was reelected as president. He did not get elected as a vice president. So this is not a great spot to be in. Al Gore tried to beat George W. Bush as a sitting vice president, wasn't able to do it, wasn't even able to carry his home state, which everyone seems to forget. Everyone talks about Florida, 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 Florida. They keep hacking the Florida and the hanging chads. If he won his own state of Tennessee, he wouldn't have needed Florida. But nobody mentions that because it's an inconvenient truth. That is, that's the real inconvenient truth, <coughs> not this garbage climate change book that Al Gore wrote of the same title. The inconvenient truth is you lost because you couldn't win your home state, so shut your hole and go back and crawl into it and pull it down over you. That's what we got for that. Now, we also have Mike Pence entering the race this week. He's going to be announcing. He's got two chances, slim and none. He's going nowhere. Uh, he really has to be deluded if he thinks anyone's going to vote for him. So I don't know what his angle is. He's not going to get a political appointment in a Trump administration if Trump gets in, unless he thinks he can be running mate for Ron DeSantis as sort of an anti-Trump. I don't think so. I think he's too tainted. I don't think DeSantis would take him. Uh, I, I, I really don't see it. So I, I don't know what uh, Pence is thinking. But the, the one that's very interesting is the whale. Chris Christie. Chris Christie's entering in. Now, Chris Christie's really deluding himself. He's not going to win a single primary. I'll go on record right now and state that he won't even win the New Jersey state primary. Uh, Chris Christie has burned his bridge. I lost respect for Chris Christie in light of the Bridgegate scandal. Remember when he had that uh, shut down on the bridge to try and hurt Democratic mayors or something that voted against him, whatever you uh, why did I lose respect for him and why I think he's a lightweight and can't handle the national spotlight? Because he held a press conference when these two people were convicted of uh, Bridgegate. And he 
spent two hours apologizing for something that he said he didn't do. He said, well, I, I didn't know about this. It was done by them, but, you know, I'm accountable. Uh, I'm the governor, so I take responsibility for it. Uh, you say that, and you walk off. You don't stand there and keep saying it for two hours, because the more you keep saying it, the more it looks like you have something to hide, and you know you have something to hide, which is why you're saying it. So he's a lightweight. And as an added bonus is another reason why you should despise Chris Christie. Guess who his lawyer was during the Bridgegate scandal? The current director of the FBI, Christopher Wray. You can't make this stuff up. He's also the one who told Trump that he should hire Christopher Wray or appoint him as the director of the FBI after they got rid of um, James Comey, that other jerk uh, that was in the FBI. So Chris Christie's just a joke. I, I don't understand what he thinks um, he's going to gain from this. Now, uh, as a side note, in, in issue of full disclosure, even though those two aides uh, were found guilty of shutting down the George Washington Bridge uh, entrance, um, the Supreme Court overturned those convictions in 2020, uh, stating that the aides ordered the bridge lanes closed for no reason other than political payback and concluded that the fraud charges of which they were convicted couldn't be upheld since no property or money was involved. Well, that's probably true on the technical uh, grounds. There was no money. Uh, so how are you going to say it's fraud? Now, there's some other uh, little interesting facts here. It seems that Ray's law firm collected $2.1 million from New Jersey taxpayers since being hired by Christie in 2014, including 653000 for work both during the six-week federal corruption trial and since then, according to bills obtained by the Asbury Park Press under a public records request. But Christie's connection to Ray didn't end there. This article says it was former New Jersey governor who recommended. Oh, we already covered that. To replace him. So Christie is he's going nowhere, and he's going to go there fast, very fast. So that's the field. Other people like Nikki Haley, you're not going to get. My thing is this, and I'm going to give this constant message in every show where I have the opportunity to mention it. I've said this before, but for those of you who have never heard the show before, I'm going to say it again. Throughout this country's history, it has been saved time and time again. Indeed, the world, in many cases, has been saved time and time again by imperfect people, imperfect men. Winston Churchill was not a perfect man, but I don't think England could have survived World War II without him without his leadership, without his courage, without his insight. George Washington was not a perfect man, but he beat the British. He saved the revolution, and a new nation, the greatest nation the world has ever seen, was born. Abraham Lincoln was a manic depressive, a man haunted by a lot of demons, and did a lot of dark things during some of the darkest hours of this republic, but his actions 
that only freed the slaves, but saved the Union from the secession of the South and preserved it as the country we know today. Ulysses S. Grant was a smoking, drinking man, but he was the best general the Union Army had, one of the only ones that was winning, and he beat the South. George S. Patton was a drinking, smoking man and somebody who swore like a stable boy, but he was the best combat general we had in the European theater. Would have been tough to beat the Nazis without him. Douglas MacArthur was an egalitarian, an elitist, but a brilliant man who won the war in the Pacific, defeated the Japanese, and set up a government in Japan better in some respects than the government we have here, and is revered to this day in both Japan and the Philippines. Can't win these wars, can't do these great things without these people. When I look for better government, when I look for a president, I don't look for a perfect man. The only perfect man I'm aware of in history was nailed to a cross. Everyone else is presumed to be imperfect. Do I think Donald Trump is a perfect man? No, I do not. Do I think he's a very good man? Yes, I do. I don't think I'm a perfect man. So why would I think Donald Trump or anybody else is? But I think he's a very good man. A very good man. And I think he's a true patriot. And I think that rather than looking for perfection, rather than worrying about tweets, rather than worry about him picking on somebody or getting involved in a verbal fistfight with someone, people should be looking at the bigger picture. They should be looking at who is a man for the times. Ron DeSantis may have done a good job in Florida, but as I said, he's got a conservative electorate. He's got a conservative legislature. He's never going to be able to do the same thing in Washington, D.C. And as long as he's a first-term president looking for a second term, and invariably he will, he's going to be compromised to a certain degree. If Trump made any mistake during his first administration, that was it. And it's a mistake that Trump acknowledges, because we know Peter Navarro said this in an interview I read with him, and that is he thought he could try and mend the fences and bring people together. He didn't realize the level of hatred, absolute hatred, they had for him. And so he made the mistake of bringing certain people into the tent, like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. He's not going to make those mistakes again. He gets in again, he's going to clean house because he doesn't have to curry favor with anyone because he's not running again. Donald Trump is the only man for the job right now. Republicans haven't known how to be in the majority since Ronald Reagan was president. They don't know how to lead. He was the last one that taught them how to lead. Since then, whenever you get a Republican in office or a Republican Senate, Republican uh, House of Representatives, Republican president, you don't get a reversal of American fortunes. All you get is a slowing down of the inevitable decline. Only Donald Trump said about reversing fortunes. We didn't get declined during Trump. For the first time in my lifetime, we became energy independent. We didn't have to import oil from the Middle East or Mexico or Canada or anyplace else. We became a net exporter of oil for the first time, which reduced the amount of money that Putin could get from his oil, because that's all Russia is, is a giant gasoline station. It doesn't have a diversified economy like we do. He doesn't get oil money. He can't be adventurous with his military. Financial 
Financial manipulation, financial victory. That's how he cut and clipped Putin's wings. You wouldn't have this war in Ukraine if Trump was still president. He's the only one that understands it. He's the only one that can get it done. So I'm telling you right now, put aside your little petty differences. Put aside the fact that you don't like his tweets. Put aside the fact that you don't like that he pulls no punches. You want to get the job done? You want to see gas go down from $4 a gallon down to the $1.87 that it was? You want to see food prices go back down again? You want to see things aplenty? You want to feel safe? You want to see troops come home and not get deployed overseas in new wars that benefit no one except the contractors who sell and manufacture the armaments? You vote for Donald Trump. And remember, you heard it here first, but it won't be the last time because I'll be saying it many times more and often between now and Election Day 2024. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury. Enjoy your weekend.